We'd like to give a big shout out to Jonathan Lambert and everybody supporting us over on our Patreon site. And you too can also support us there by going to patreon.com slash mentors, the number four M-I-L. This podcast is sponsored by Uncanna, trusted natural solutions. Uncanna is a leading voice of advocacy for CBD in the veteran LEO and federal communities. Veteran-owned and operated, the Uncanna team is actively fighting for DOD access to CBD with political pressure, community support, and a simple message. Hashtag OpNatural. Uncanna is vertically integrated with industry leaders from seed to sell, supplying premium small batch products to America's best. Use code mentors the number four MIL at checkout at uncanna.com to receive your amazing discount. Read the Mentors for Military disclaimer at mentorsformilitary.com slash disclaimer. This is the Mentors for Military podcast. Hey guys, this is Robert, and I'm joined by Mike Pritz, Mike Redledge, and we got a really good topic for you on this episode. We're going to be talking about leading A-types, and I can tell you from the private sector out there that it's just as much a challenge there as I found within the military, and especially, you know, Mike Pritz, you and Mike Redledge, both coming from the soft community, where there are a lot of alpha males, A-type personalities and such. So um, I'm very curious to hear from your perspective some of the challenges you guys had in terms of being a leader of those individuals. Well, the reason I uh, approached this topic at some point, Robert, was the fact that when I was younger in my career and put in leadership positions, I realized I sucked at it. And uh, the first time it was brought to my attention was when uh, one of my platoon chiefs, a guy named Steve Link, you know, I, I had done something wrong and I was kind of down on myself a little bit. And he's like, hey, hey, listen. He's like, Any, anybody can uh, lead a platoon full of, you know, spineless panty waste. He goes, that's easy because they're just sheeple, you know, and they do whatever you ask them to do. He goes, but uh, you're going to have to up your game a little bit when you're when you're working with the SEALs because everybody there thinks they're better than you. So that was kind of the catalyst to, one, expose the fact that I was not good at it, and it's a developmental process. Leaders are not born. And, two, that uh, it does take a special technique and it's a lot harder to lead hard charters, whether it's in business, football, you know, military, whatever the case may be. So, it, and I'm still working on it to this day, although I just retired two days ago. So, I'm not sure if I need to work on it as hard, but that's kind of how it started. I'm going to capitalize on a couple of things that Mike said. One, um, that leaders are not born. And I think that's something that the Army tries to instill in people, but I would disagree to some extent. And I, I think that there's something. Uh, particularly with A-types, that is inherent about leadership. Now, maybe they don't understand how to use that, but there's something charismatic about a lot of A-type personalities. And, and I think that with that charisma comes the ability to influence other people. And that's what we're talking about when we're trying to get them to do something. Um, and then the second thing, you talked about how all, all these SEALs potentially think they're better than you. And one thing that I, I had to grasp is that, you know, there are a lot of people who I was in charge of who certainly were better than me. They were better shaped than I was. They were more competent at their job than I was. They were they were just probably more naturally uh, gifted in some areas. And, and hey, that's okay. Uh, I don't have to be the best at everything in order to, to move the ball down the field 
to in- improve the performance of the organization. And I think that's just some, some things to, to realize. Everybody is not going to be a leader. Not everybody is, is, is cracked out to be a team sergeant in Special Forces. Uh, and I've had to have that heart-to-heart with a few different guys and, who weren't getting promoted and, and for, for various different reasons. But, you know, everybody is just not going to be the number one guy. So you, you've got to do the best that you can in that position. That's, a, that's a, I guess, a different leadership challenge when you've got a, a person who thinks they should be in charge, aren't in charge. But my own opinion on leading A-types is that I think that it is more important not to demotivate somebody who is inherently charismatic and, and thinks that they are, you know, the best. And it's really easy to demotivate those types, really easy to crush their uh, initiative. But, but as a leader, particularly as a, as a higher organizational leader, the things that we, we see them doing, probably did some of them myself, don't do the best job at improving morale and esprit in an organization. And I think from at least a, uh, an organizational level leader, that's what you've got to try and do. You've got to try to keep uh, that that morale high. you got to try and keep a spree high. And I think that you do that by allowing a lot of those guys to take on the roles that they naturally can fill. Yeah, I, I think sometimes my perspective right now is limited to leadership of in the SEAL teams and on 60th and all these organizations have been a part of where, you know, everybody are really, really hard chargers. And uh, SEAL teams, you know, operators are particularly difficult because everyone is supposed to be proficient in the best. Um, I teach, uh, well, I did before I retired a couple of days ago, you know, taught the seniors at West Point um, before they went out the door, kind of leadership other than doctrinal. And they would always ask, well, what can I do this and that? And where do I look at this answer? I'm like, well, you know what? Sometimes it's not published in a book. Sometimes you have to develop your, your technique and it's going to take a while. It's going to take five, six years or failing a couple times. Um, but that group is not necessarily full of A-types. Um, but I would tell them, like, you know, not everybody has the personality to be the leader you see on TV, you know, with a strong voice and, and all that. And uh, people don't gravitate towards them. I said, so if you're kind of a meek, mild personality, you have to adopt a different technique for getting people to do what you need them to do. You know, you're not going to be able to basically dominate them into performing. You're going to have to coerce them or convince them. And they may or may not respect you. And uh, I had an interesting story a few years ago in the 160th. We had a young captain check in. He was very unexperienced, and uh, we weren't quite sure what kind of a pilot he was. And talking about you have to respect your leaders. To He, he wasn't a super pilot. He wasn't a very charismatic leader. And we kind of thought, well, he won't last very long. He'll be on the way out. And uh, we were on the way over to Afghanistan, and we had an MH-47 broken down into a C-17. And you got to bear with me on the length of the story because it's got a great ending. <laughs> but uh, so the only time we had to sleep is uh, for that 17 hours or whatever is – you know, putting our sleeping bags and stuff underneath the helicopter on the C-17. That was the transit time was all we had to sleep because as soon as we got there, it got built up and we started flying. And uh, so this Air Force crew, and we'll try not to make this descend down into I don't care for the Air Force, but so the Air Force crew had their personal suitcases and their golf bags and all that kind of stuff, all the places that we would sleep. And technically, we're not allowed to actually sleep under the helicopter while it's flying. Um, so while we're Getting on board, you know, we're seeing all their stuff on the floor, and we can't uh, we can't put our sleeping bags down there. So, the chalk commander was this captain. Even though we had senior W fours and W fives, this guy was in charge of all the one sixty people going over there, and it was a chartered C seventeen. So it belonged to us. It wasn't you know didn't have other people on it. Anyway, so we got on, and uh, one of our other flight leads talked to loadmaster said, "Hey, can you guys move your stuff so we can lay down some place we got to sleep." It's like, well, you know, Air Force regulation says you can't put there, blah, 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 and you got to stay in your seats for 17 hours. And so 
we told this captain, we're like, well, you're in charge, you know, you're not really in charge of us, but you're in charge. So go talk to this, the uh, loadmaster. So he goes talk to the loadmaster, you know, loadmaster tells him the same thing. And this kid, I say kid, he's probably 30 at the time, but this young captain, he says, go get the flight commander, get him out of his seat. Now I want to talk to him. Well, the guy happened to be a lieutenant colonel. Oh. So, so, so this lieutenant colonel walks down the stairs, you know, and keep in mind, we don't have a ton of respect for this, this captain. This lieutenant colonel comes down the stairs to C-17, talks to this captain, and we can't, we can't see exactly, we can see it, but we can't hear exactly what's transpiring. And we just see this captain point his finger in his chest and hear him say, <laughs> get your shit off that floor so my men can sleep. They're about to go fly in combat. And this lieutenant colonel looks over, his loadmaster says, get all your stuff up. And they picked everything up. And, and at that very second, this kid that we did not respect and had no history, we're like, I will follow that geek anyway. I don't care. <laughs> I don't care what kind of a pilot he is. All I know is he, he rose to the occasion when it mattered, and he took care of his men. And that is a, the best example I've ever had about you don't have to be you know Captain America doing everything better. All you have to do is is know when it's time to, to use your positional authority and take care of your men or women. Oh, I like that last part there because I think you know from the private sector perspective of what I found after I got out of the Army was as I started raise, uh, going up through the, the ranks of corporate America – um, that the same type of A-types that you would typically find out here in the in the military, you also found out there. You found individuals who felt like they had earned that position or that right to be able to have some level of authority or position or something. And um, these individuals would size you up and the whole bit. And I think the, the biggest thing that I learned that I took away is that you've got to know when when basically to act as a leader and at other times just to have good communication skills and have that influence capability that you talked about, Mike, uh, very early on, Mike Pritz, in that, you know, it's more about influencing other people than really leading them. And there is a big difference, I think, because when you influence them, um, in some cases, you, you may not even be doing it in a way of authority like that captain was doing. But instead, you're doing it in a way where they don't even realize that you're asking them to do something in a very forward manner of something that you're going to hold them accountable for, or there's going to be some measurable outcome that comes from it. They just want to do it because they trust you, they believe in you, and they you know, aspire to be like you or whatever the case may be. For whatever reason it is that you inspired them to, to do these actions and stuff, that's why they go and do it. And you don't have to use that position of authority or power in order to, to really get them to, to get motivated. You know, there's something else that, that Mike said a little bit ago uh, when he's talking about teaching the West Point cadets. And that's uh, telling them to be comfortable going out and, and failing a couple of times um, before they get successful at doing something. And that's something, failure, is something that most A-types are not very comfortable with, um, especially when it comes to their own, I, I don't know, uh, personal performance, tactical performance, proficiency in their job. They, they understand failure uh, in physical fitness, right? They understand pushing their bodies to muscle failure in order to get stronger, but they don't understand failing at a task or failing at something uh, as they're trying to learn something new as a, as a means to, to become better. Um, and, and one of the things that I've taken from the soft community into, into coaching um, with kids is, is trying to train them at that point of failure. So you set up a drill, uh, and we did it in, you know, CQB and stuff too. You would, you would set up a drill that is a little bit more challenging and dangerous than the, the skill level of, of the shooter in CQB or the skill level of the athlete when it comes to football. Uh, and then they get to a point where they crawl, walk, run, and in running, 
they can't do the drill efficiently anymore. So you have to slow down, back up a little bit, mitigate what they're doing, and 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 have them gradually increase the pace until they are successful. So th- there is some benefit in pushing yourself to failure uh, in a controlled circumstance. Obviously, we don't want to fail when we're in combat, when lives are at stake. But in training or, or in training to get better in, in any type of skill, there's a lot to be said for actually accepting that failure as a teaching point. I've actually used this, and I've said this in other episodes that we've done, um, in watching and observing leaders that maybe weren't that good, or I didn't think that were um, in a role that they should have been or in a position that they should have been. And to your point, Mike, I actually use them not just as my my personal failure, but watching somebody else who constantly made mistake after mistake and realizing that if I had the opportunity, I would do something very different than that individual. And so that taught me just as much valuable lessons, I think, um, as it was for me to go ahead and do them myself. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm, I'm going to back up very slightly on that story. And I have to credit that young passive captain was named David, uh, David Amador. And uh, he actually went on to be a, a complete pipe hitting company commander in the one sixty. So I had to give him credit in case he's listening. Cause then he'll send something bad. But, uh, yeah, I'm going to limit the scope a little bit as we kind of progress with this on talking about new leaders and we'll just say lieutenants ensigns in particular, um, because that's the flavor of the month for me right now coming from West Point. And the, the problem that these kids, I say kids because they're under 30, but the problem that they have is, you know, think about a place like West Point or Annapolis or wherever, you know, whatever commissioning source they have. Think of uh, just West Point in particular. They're told for four years you're graduating from the world's preeminent leader development institute. So they have in their mind that academically and doctrinally they've been taught everything they need to know to handle every leadership situation. And that works fine, you know, until you add in the, the people element. As I tell them, if you got people, you got people problems. So it works really fine until you have to add the, the variable of personalities and egos and capabilities and, and all that. And so, like Mike had touched on, well, it's a developmental process. And so when you're brand new and you have to lead those people, um, I'll always tell them, I'm like, you know what? You're not going to have all the answers and people are going to not like you and you're going to make the wrong decisions. But still shelf some left and right limits on what you will allow. So you know what right is. And if all else fails, you just have to figure out how to take care of your people. Now, that doesn't mean be a pushover and make everybody happy because surefire way to fail as a leader, as a brand new leader, is to try and make everybody happy. That never, ever works. Yeah. Historically, appeasement is not a great technique for anything. Um, you know, and that leads to a whole bunch of other things of, you know, bullying, being overbearing, all that kind of stuff. So once you show your, your weak underbelly, you know, we all, we all will take advantage of it, myself included. I can't help it. You know, if I've got a weak leader that'll let me get away with something, you know, subconsciously I'll tell myself I'm doing the right thing, but, or overtly I'll tell myself I'm doing the right thing, but subconsciously I'm really going to push the boundaries to benefit me. And, and we just all do that. So, you know, you can be hard but fair, and uh, although everybody will bitch and say, you know, say what a hard ass you are or whatever, secretly and grudgingly, they, they will respect you as you're learning your way. So you got to have boundaries, making people... Don't, uh, I'll tell the lieutenants, I'm like, don't ever associate making somebody happy with being a successful leader. They are not exclusive or they're not the same thing. When you talk about building relationships and stuff, it's really important, but I think you're right. People do get lost in that. You want to be a relational leader, but not a relationship leader. And those to me are two different things. A relationship, a person who builds relationships in order to influence others, uh, because 
you know, they develop mutual respect with other people, work well with them, and, you know, people want to follow them. That's different than an individual that just tries to appease the masses and tries to build relationships in a way of doing everything that somebody else wants them to do or the people that they're leading wants them to do because they want them to like them. And I think that's where um, there's a difference there between a relational leader and a relationship leader, if you try to determine it in that type of way. My senior level leadership courses in the military were not in the Army, they were in the Air Force. And that's uh, that's exactly what the Air Force teaches their superintendents. It's um, it, it's a term that they call social management. And in the Air Force, interestingly, they don't use the term leadership for their enlisted uh, leaders. They, they, they call them managers, right? But they call it man- social management, and, and, and it's just what you were saying, Robert. It's, it's, it's the ability to build relationships uh, that, that, that kind of influence people to want to do what you need them to get done to, to move the organization forward. Um, and then, and then they, they contrast that with something called a task manager, where a task manager will do whatever it takes to get the job done, no matter if it's stepping on people, making them feel bad about themselves, whatever. Uh, in, in the military today, we generally call that toxic. But, you know... The, the interesting thing about at least the way they teach it, at least the way I tried to implement it, was um, you know a social manager can do both. A, a social manager gets a lot of a lot of shit done. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, and I, I'll give you an example. I remember standing out in front of a, a, a entire battalion formation one day, and we had a whole lot of dumb shit that I had to ask them to do because you know the the three star was coming in from Usasak, and our 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 group commander was worried about weeds growing in the motor pool. And I, and I kind of told him it. I told him that way. I said, hey, I'm going to ask you to do a lot of dumb shit this week. And I, I, I can't I can't disguise that. Um, hopefully you'll do it for me and you'll do it for, you know, our battalion commander who was a fantastic guy. Uh, but, but ultimately, I know it's dumb shit. Uh, I know you know it's dumb shit. And I'm not going to try and sell it to you like it, it, it's the most important thing in the world because it's not. We should be out on the fucking range training. Um, but, but because... You know, the three stars coming in, the boss wants this done. We're going to spend some time doing it. I'm going to be down here doing it with you. And, and you should have seen the impression of the, the entire group because they knew some shit was coming down. And it's just like a relief came off of them. They started laughing. Uh, everybody jumped in and, and helped, and we got the stuff done really, really quickly. That's because I'd taken the time to build relationships before that, that I could then manage that task uh, to, to, to get it accomplished. And I, I think that that's just – Again, something that not everybody who becomes a leader can can manage those relationships to where you can get everything done. Whether it's a everybody everybody wants to go out and do the the fun stuff, right? It's easy to influence guys to do the things that are a lot of fun. It's hard to influence guys to do the things that aren't so much fun. Um, and then on another topic, I was I was thinking about something that that Mike had said about new leaders and inheriting people problems and not trying to just try to appease the masses. Uh, some of those people problems, I, I think, we can overcome with a lot of this relationship stuff as well. Uh, there's an impression in the military that uh, uh, an organization has zero defects and the leader is successful. Mm-hmm. And if the organization has some problems and, and the same problems that we all have today, and it doesn't matter. I mean, I've got the same problems coaching high school football as I did as a command sergeant major in the Army. But, but, I mean, I've got domestic violence. I've got alcohol and drug abuse. I've got, um, you know, all, all kinds of things that, that are going on. Uh, I've got suicide issues, right? Um, and, and those are things that we look at a leader in the military and we say, oh, buddy, your organization is not successful because all of this stuff is an indicator of your command climate. And I, I think just the opposite. 
I think that a, a successful leader can go into that organization and using those same type of relational skills you were talking about, Robert, can still move the organization forward and accomplish organizational objectives. And I think that's really a better test of a leader than inheriting something that's already working perfectly, right? That's, that's, that, that you don't have any of those problems. I think to see how that organization does, doesn't matter what the organization is, uh, private sector or military sector, but I think that a true test of that leader, and especially a new leader, is how well he can mitigate some of those problems that he encounters as a new leader. Here's an embarrassingly uh, revealing fact is that all these years I had 27 years supposedly of leadership acumen and uh, I just had to do the turnover with uh, my successor uh, the commander at uh, West Point of the Aviation Department. I just turned did my final turnover before my change of command on Friday change of command of retirement and uh, I had to embarrassingly tell him I said hey Joe here, here's the deal I could go on this big long diatribe and tell you all the things that I did right that you're going to carry forward I said but it's going to be easier I'm going to tell you all the things that I did wrong and he kind of looked at me, and we sat there for about 45 minutes, and I'll, I'll encapsulate it. But I said, so here's the problem. I said, I came in here strung out from deployments. You know, this is a non-deployable TDA assignment. And I said, I thought everyone was kind of on the same sheet of music. I said, so I completely screwed this up. I said, I came in, and the first year, I wanted to be everybody's buddy. I wanted to have a lot of time at home. We were going to have, you know, this was going to be really enjoyable. Kumbaya, everybody holding hands. And I'm like, I completely screwed it up, Joe. I said, because in that year... Everybody became complacent and lazy and a whole host of other things that allow that happen when you allow boundaries to be expanded. I said, and then at that point, it was impossible for me to rein it back in mm. without, you know, affecting morale so much. Um, and I, it's embarrassing to have to say that because, you know, when you consider yourself an experienced leader and I'm telling people about leadership all day long, I said, but I screwed that up. And so that's when I say, you know, you, you can't let it get to that point. You're never going to make everybody happy. And uh, if you recall a character from a previous podcast, Robert, uh, when Mike Weiskopf were talking about Dave Dukazow. Yeah. What, one of his favorite saving, and he was a peer, but he had some great intuition on leadership. He's like, listen, brother, leadership's not a popularity contest. And at that time, I didn't grasp it, but he's absolutely right. It's, they don't have to like you, but they'll need to respect you. And that's on you on how you do it. And kind of going back to that earlier comment, because everything seems to kind of rotate around that is simulated now the leadership of being a parent since I now have teenagers. They will not respect you if you don't give them and enforce boundaries. And that seems to be the easiest corollary. Hard to explain to new lieutenants or ensigns or sergeants, you know, when they may not be parents, but talk to anybody who's got teenagers like, oh, that's total parenting. That's all it is. It's just parenting larger kids. I think uh, I like the fact that you say about boundaries and stuff. And I know that we did an episode uh, a long time ago about new leaders and coming into a new unit or an individual that's transferring into a unit that they've not been in before. Uh, but I like where you say the boundaries for the individual and set those rules. But I think too, Mike, you know, Pritz listening to you, it's also about not trying to make a, or Mike Rutledge, not trying to make an early assessment of what you believe that team or that command or that, um, that organization needs from you by walking in the door, just based on the interview that you've heard, the overview that you've received in the first week or so, but truly step back and understand that there has to be some guidelines that you have as a leader that you're going to go walking in with that you're not going to ever steer from i mean those are your principles your pillars whatever you want to call it but yet then you assess the team and the organization within say the first 30 60 90 days to determine 
how then you can better influence that organization to move forward and transform themselves as individuals and as an organization and achieve greater things than what they did before, as opposed to using a cookie cutter approach or making assumptions as you walk in the door. How ironic that I'm we're here having this discussion on all the things that we can pass down on leadership. And when I had the pinnacle of my career, I completely screwed it up. So that, that's kind of humbling. You know, so imagine how hard it is for a young sergeant or lieutenant or, or somebody of that nature to, to step into a room of a subordinate personnel by rank, but maybe far more achieved than them when it comes to experience or positional authority. Tough place to be in for, for a young kid. I love that you did that, though. And I mean that you humbled yourself. And not only that, but you passed on some good wisdom. Whether or not he would have done the same thing as he walked in the door, that kind of wisdom will pay dividends, hopefully, later on down the line if it wasn't for this command, just in leadership in general. You know, I mean... Don't ever make assumptions. Don't ever walk in the door with uh, your own idea of how you want to do things. Sit back sometimes on occasion, listen, learn, and then take action. Funniest part about that was the guy who preceded me left a company commander, a doctrinal company commander book on the desk. And I never, ever opened that book. You know, I'm like, well, I'm a, number one, I'm a warrant officer. I got 27 years. I don't, I don't need, you know, some dumb how to be a company commander book. And it was funny, so I'm cleaning out my office and I pull this book out, you know, and I, and I look at it and I'm like, some bitch, like page nine, it says that very first thing, come in hard. <laughs> you know, I'm like, had I just read that, right. got to page nine, you know, while I'm on the toilet or drinking coffee or something like that, had I just perused through that, it might've turned out entirely differently because I thought institutionally I had enough experience, you know, and I don't, I don't need to rely on doctrine and, and all that kind of stuff, so. That's the, the tenant of my career now that it's closed out is I think I screwed it up, but harsh debrief for myself. I used to have some good notes on, on transition. That was a kind of a combination of stuff of assumption and leadership out of the Ranger Handbook and, um, and some notes that I've had of doing things right and wrong over the course of a 30-year career. And I was just looking at my phone. For whatever reason, I, I can't find them. But, but the, the one thing, as you were talking, Robert, about uh, kind of wrapping that up was – was uh, the most important thing I think that a leader does, as he's particularly a new leader to an organization, is um, because change is difficult. Doesn't matter what you're trying to change, change in administration or, or change in you know what you're trying to do with the organization. But the, the most important thing that a leader does during that that change is manage transitions, and and that's 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 very difficult to do at times, especially if you if you do come in thinking that you know you're you're the you're the main guy and everything's going to revolve around you. And you haven't set that tone by building relationships. Again, as the new guy, you've got to take that time like you uh, alluded to. The organization is already running. Unless you're being sent in as a fixer, right, yeah. to, to fix something that's broken, um, the organization is running. It was running before you got there. The organization is going to be running after you leave. The organization that I thought was the best I've ever been in um, has been running for six years since I left it, right, and, and, and probably doing much better things than, than what I did while I was there. But in that interim part, that new leader that comes in is really responsible for managing that change, making the changes easy on, on the people that are, that are producing for the organization and just managing the transition. Well, whether you're leading as a new leader or you're leading A types, and I know we kind of did a little pivot there and switch and stuff, but I think it doesn't matter either way. Sometimes you've just got to listen more and lead less. So uh, at times you've just got to pay attention to what's going on, listen to some of the feedback of the people that you're going to be leading, take their input into consideration, and then try to decide, you know, what type of leader 
leadership that you really need to provide? Because in some cases, you may have some outstanding subordinates that are leaders in their own right, that the only thing you need to do as a leader is to help protect and guide them in the right direction, obviously, and give them coaching and mentoring, but maybe more importantly, get the hell out of their way. Yeah. And back to what I said with my first comment, the most important thing to do when you're dealing with A-types is not to demotivate them. Um, just what you said, Robert, lead less, let them do what they know they have to do. Yeah. Mike's right. We have to have boundaries because a type, particularly green berets will steal you blind. They'll, 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 they'll do everything they can possibly do to get away with things. So they've got to have boundaries, but they've also got to be empowered to know that you've got their back, uh, while they're out there doing the right thing. Cause 99% of the time, that's what they're doing. That's all they really want sometimes from that leader. Hey, if I know that you got, you know, you respect me and what I'm capable of doing and you have my back, I- I'm going to work my ass off for you. You are absolutely right on that. And that, uh, you know, I've had young lieutenants say, well, how can I, you know, I'm walking into, we'll just use one sickness, for example, or like I'm walking in as a platoon leader. I've got four W4s, you know, that have 10, 15 combat deployments. I've got, you know, a whole platoon of, of war officer pilots. How can I be an effective leader to you? I'm just out of flight school, you know, I'm just out of flight school or not flight school, but I'm just out of my first, first tour here at showing up the 160th. And I'll always tell them, I'm like, well, here's the deal. No. Tactically and technically, you're years away from, from where we are. And it's difficult to walk in with people that have more experience than you. I said, but if I'm in a you know, conventional unit, 101st, 82nd, some cab or something like that, I said, here's what I expect from you, though. I expect you to, one, be in the correct uniform at the right time at the right place. Like the stuff that was within the scope of your experience level, I expect you to do absolutely perfectly. Do I expect you to fly and have the institutional knowledge that someone has been doing it for 10 years? Absolutely not. But if I ask you to write an award or do some admin stuff or something that's well within the scope of, of what you have learned, yeah, I expect you to do that perfectly. You know, the things that you can influence and do well, I expect you to do no fail. Do I expect you to be the best pilot and tactician? Absolutely not, because that's what you're going to have to learn. That's, that's why you're here is to learn that. So the things that you're responsible for, do well. You know, if, if you are just out of flight school or just out of your, your uh whatever course you are, MOS course, then you should be as well studied to the extent of what it took you to graduate. I should be able to ask you a question to the extent of your knowledge and you should be able to answer it. You know, you shouldn't throw the book away and me have to reteach you everything because you took 30 days of leave. I mean, that's just coming in the door as a brand new lieutenant. Um, the other part is in dealing with the A types is, you know, I tell them if you're going to hang with the big dogs, which is kind of trivializing the thought, but if you're going to hang with the big dogs, then you have better at least attempt to lead the way. You know, nobody wants their leader to be the middle of the pack or in the back. You cannot lead from the back. I don't care what it is, whether it's PT or shooting or whatever. And to use Mike's reference, if you're on a, you know, if you're on a squad shooting pairs or an ODA or something like that, everybody knows you haven't been shooting for 10 years. You're not going to beat the operators that have been doing it for that long. But to your experience level, you, you at least better be able to be sprinting back and forth between the obstacles faster than anyone else. You better climb the O course faster than anyone else or any of the skill level stuff. So, the stuff that you can do, you should be the best in your platoon, company, whatever. Um, and that will garner you enough respect to basically hold the dogs at bay until you get enough experience to make sound decisions. I'll, I'll just tag on to that. You know, I, I, I remember from my own time as a, as a young guy in the teams, having, you know, organizational leaders who were afraid to shoot in front of the teams, who failed PT tests, um, who, and that sets a, that sets a tone, right? Uh, that you're that you're out of shape, you're incompetent. So on day one, uh, just like Mike said, you've got to jump in a stress shoot. You've got to be able to perform it and hit all the targets. 
You got to be able to physically fit to keep up with the PT that everybody else is doing. Know you're not going to do it to the same pace and speed that, that a guy in a SIF company is doing. Um, but damn, don't walk away from it, right? Don't, don't be ashamed uh, of your own skill level. Don't show up incompetent and, and not ready to take on that because you are the senior level operator in that organization and, and you, you've got to come ready to work. So I think when you're talking about leading A types is one, don't be afraid to fail, but when in charge, you have to be in charge. You know, no, nobody is going to respect a passive leader because that's actually a, an incorrect term. There is no such thing as a passive leader. You can't be both. So A types, we will all respect you and we'll follow you, you know, to the grave if we think you have our back. And that's really, if you have to encapsulate this whole podcast into one small piece, if I think you have my back, I don't care if you're the most tactically and technically proficient leader, I will protect you. And that's that's your, your metric when you figure out you've done it right. Because when you're, your soldiers or your sailors, whatever you've got, when they turn around and they watch out for you, you know, kind of like siblings, like, well, I, I may beat the hell out of my brother, but uh, God help anyone else who comes inside the circle and tries to do it. That is your metric that you've arrived as a leader. So you may do that in six months, you know, it may take you a year or so, whatever, but take care of your people and they will allow you the room to grow as a leader.